0: Today on episode number 321, Joseph Waldensee joins me to talk about the audience, path and destination. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I am joined by Dr. Joseph Waldense. He's an assistant professor in the African-American African Studies Department and an affiliated faculty member in political science at the University of Minnesota He received his PhD in political science from Indiana University and a bachelor's in political studies from Bard College His research interests are in the areas of elite politics authoritarian regimes political institutions and social network analysis with a geographical focus on Africa Outside of research, he's had the privilege to teach at a diverse set of institutions, including Indiana University, MIT, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, the Bard Prison Initiative, and most recently, the University of Minnesota. He's currently assisting with the larger efforts by Governor Waltz to institutionalize higher education across prisons in the state of Minnesota. And he writes, if I had to sum up what I strive for when teaching, I would say that I try to construct an environment that fosters Socratic dialogue, as displayed in Plato's writing, Euthyphro. Joseph, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You are going to take us on a journey today, I already know it, because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to talk to us about story. And as I was reading through your materials, you quote someone named Lisa Crone, and she writes... Story is how we make sense of the world, but the real breakthrough is the discovery of what triggers that sense of pleasure we feel when a story hooks us. Joseph, would you talk a little bit about hooks and why they're important as we think about storytelling and our teaching?
1: Essentially, what it comes down to is asking the question, or really, you know, when we, we as academics deal with our subject matters. It's incredibly you know, complicated, intricate, and in many respects, it's a, it's a different world that really just we, the researcher, inhabit. And the challenge then becomes, well, how do you get your audience to enter that world and sufficiently explore it so they can gain an understanding and engage with you and your ideas? And to me, in many respects, storytelling is a technology that we as humans in some ways have evolved. And it's a very effective information communication device, if you will. And so, really, in this case, a hook to me is about what it means to get your audience to enter that world and then continue traversing that world, um, which is in many ways very challenging, especially when you're dealing with an audience that to them it's almost like a cultural shock. Right? If you're a place in a country and a culture that is completely foreign to you, You're not just going to go and embrace everything around you. You're going to be reticent. You're going to be hesitant. So the question becomes, how can I invite you into this new culture, so to speak, in a way that you can embrace and sort of let down your guard and begin in wanting to explore yourself? And I think in many respects, the analogy here being that storytelling does that for you. It enables you that sort of the vehicle to enter that world and explore
0: at what point did you notice that this invitation was necessary did that come from your own life and your own experiences where you were or were not invited into this new academic world or did it come more when you started teaching and you saw some of this resistance or is it c all of the above or none of the above? (laughs) don't you love when an interview gives you a dichotomous choice (laughs)
1: i'd definitely say all of the above Yeah. yeah I think it sort of manifests slightly differently in your sort of hardcore academic presentation and in sort of the teaching writ large, like classroom teaching. I think the way I sort of distinguish it is that in the context of a classroom, what my goal is, is to have you as a student really have a stake in your own learning. Mm-hmm. So the question for me becomes how can I have you engage with the material? And what that means is. Really, the goal for me is to say, you, we, we're going to engage the material, not as here's a set of information that you're sort of digesting. But instead, it's to the extent possible, we're going to reflect the discourse in any academic setting, right? So whatever the idea is, I don't care from gravity to whatever that idea is, it's a discourse where people are going back and forth, you know, presenting arguments with evidence and so on and so forth. And the challenge for me is to say, okay, how can I have you sort of have a seat around that table where this discourse is happening so that you feel like you are contributing? It's ideas that you're dissecting and deconstructing. It's ideas that you are, you know, building back up and you're being challenged by your peers and by whoever in trying to sort of identify gaps in your thinking or new ways of thinking. And it's that sort of buy-in that to me is fundamental to a classroom and so I engage it in a, in a way where it's really, you are a uh, sort of an autonomous scholar, so to speak. And what you're doing is you're engaging with these ideas. And in the presentation, it's slightly different in that I only have a short amount of time. In that respect, it's going to be less interactive. It's going to be more passive where the audience sort of is receiving the information. But in that context, still the question becomes how can I have you sort of buy into what it is that I'm doing? And so that's how it sees sort of the difference between the two, but they obviously are parallels.
0: You stress so much in your work about the importance of thinking about our audience. Would you talk about your audience as it relates to the students that you work with? Who are they?
1: It's, it's mostly undergrads that I'm working with. At this point, I'd say I've, I've had the privilege to teach quite a diverse set of students. And for me, when i say audience right i'm 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 really um, i'm trying to create a certain kind of environment intellectual environment in my classroom and for me to achieve that i have to think about my my audience i have to think about my classroom my students because depending on what context they're coming from it's going to change how they're going to get to the place where i want them to go so to speak and so that to me just right away if i meet with students if i draw on certain analogies right if i'm meeting with you one-on-one immediately, so for instance, if it was you, my first thing would be like, okay, this is someone who's well-versed and sort of deeply steeped in the, the education pedagogy pedagogy world. And whatever that I'm talking about, whatever concept that may be, I'm going to try to draw on an analogies and examples that you know essentially borrows from that world in which you're in so that you can now grasp whatever that idea is, how it manifests in your context. Right? And that, in essence, to me is what it means to, to think about my audience at all times, like what would it take for you, in your context, to, to to get to wherever it is that we're trying to go.
0: When I think back to my decades of teaching, one of the things—it's very sophisticated, so hopefully you can follow me. Ha ha ha. Uh, one of the things I really had to do is just get over myself because I think about that I used to take myself so seriously, and I used to really. It, really think of my classes as m- way more important to my students' lives than they actually were. So once I could kind of get over that, because you you talk a little bit about the ideal audience versus the audience that we actually are meeting. And so for many of us, if we if we were always good students, which I was not always, so I have, <laughs> I have that to draw from, <laughs> but if those academics that I know, straight A's, you know, all the way through all of their school experiences and always passionate about their discipline can hardly remember a time when they weren't tinkering with whatever their discipline is, then it's hard not to project that onto this group of people thinking that they would see things the same way. Well, of course, you'd be just as interested in calculus as I always was. Or, you know, today I've forgotten. I've long since forgotten that I wasn't interested. You know what I mean? So tell tell us a little bit about how you contrast the ideal audience with, in reality, what might very well be in front of you in a classroom.
1: So this specific... Point that you're making. um, I was again stressing that sort of in the in the presentation workshop, even though you're right, it does apply for the classroom. But let me just sort of make those two distinctions because I think there's something, some of something of value there to make that distinction. And in the presentation part, really it's as you're saying, the assumption being that, okay, I'm going to explain to you, right? The keyword being explain to you what I'm doing. The problem with explaining implies or sort of assumes and presupposes that your audience is already, you know, understands the problem, understands the value of the problem, and sort of seeks a resolution to the problem. And this is extremely problematic because that is not the case when you're, you cannot assume that about your audience. If that ever were to be the case, that's kind of like what I call an ideal audience. When you do have an audience that has these characteristics, you won in the sense that an ideal audience is an audience that is going to be hungry for whatever it is that you have to offer. You can be incoherent, you can be babbling, it does not matter. That audience is just hungry for whatever it is that you have to offer them. But the problem is that it's very rare that we can assume that audience to exist, or presuppose that it already exists. We have to actually create that audience, right? we have to you have to literally transform an audience. In fact, that's what I say storytellers do. And you can tell that storytellers do it because of the body language, right? You go from slouching and then suddenly when you have a good storyteller, what happens? Immediately you start leaning forward, mm-hmm. right? You're, literally your body begins transforming. And what I'm saying in that case, what the storyteller has done is literally transformed you from a you know, passive or deficient audience to an ideal audience. Now you're hungry. Now you're looking to what's next, what's happening. But what about this? What about that? Right? Immediately starting to exp- not just, you know, into the world, but begin exploring it on your own. You begin identifying avenues that no one has explored yet. Right? Try to predict, project ahead what's going on. And so in that same way, I think in the classroom, when I say, you know, I need to, my students to sort of sit on that table of the discourse, really it's the same idea as to say, when you're sitting around that table, what you're doing is you're beginning, you know, understanding or sort of appreciating what is at stake here? What is the problem? Why you should care about it? why this new piece of information may potentially transform your understanding of it. And now suddenly it's like, oh man, this is, this is incredible. What, what do you mean by this? Or what do you mean, oh, okay, this completely rethink, makes me rethink something. So in that respect, an ideal audience in a classroom is really that same sort of, I have students who now are not just taking in the information but actively dissecting it, actively playing around with certain ideas. Uh, exploring different ideas and, and asking questions. So what if this would happen? What if that would happen? Once you start getting people on that level, now you have an, you know, sort of the ideal audience. Now they're active, now they're ready to really take ownership of their own learning.
0: You mentioned about understanding other people's cultures, and this has been really important for me in my teaching, and I know I still have so much room to grow. Could you share about how you do that while also simultaneously being careful not to place labels on people that don't belong. And, and I suspect we both would have lots of examples where people make assumptions about us just because of where we're from or whatever. Because because I I both think it's so critical that we understand and continue to grow our understandings of different religions, different ethnicities, different communities or places where people live and the languages, it's so critical yet also leaving this space for every person that we're meeting is unique you know do do you think about trying to simultaneously do both of those things as a storyteller
1: yeah Yeah, i mean i think to me what it is it's um i guess the the best way i can sort of explain is in a one-to-one conversation Mm -hmm. Um, so here what will happen is the more similar we are or the more comfortable i feel then sort of i'll improvise and sort of with the, with, with the assumption that I'm going to be correct in whatever analogy that I'm, that I'm using. The more distant I feel between me and sort of your cultural background, to bridge that divide and not sort of fall into the, the, the problem that you just highlighted, sort of create stereotypes of some kind. What I'll do is sort of ask yourself, okay, where, what is it that we're talking about? Where is it that I, wanna, that I want us to go? And then I might ask you, you know, I'm just coming up with this, but like, let's say, Oh, t- tell me, you know, back from you know, where you're from, what kind of food do you eat in the morning? And so now I'm allowing them to, all right, give me something of your context. And so as, you, as you're describing it, I'm sort of asking myself, okay, how can I now utilize and bring in this example that you're giving me? And then, you know, um, have us have sort of a common framework to explore this idea that I want us to explore.
0: You just hit on for me what has been really transformative for me. It's, it is context. So it's recognizing that, for example, I work with many students who are Latinx. And so what, this is just an example of something I have failed at and I'm much better at today. But knowing that the way that that many of those families will think about and treat funerals is very different from how i grew up. So i'm not going to assume that as you said if someone says oh you know grandma died or whatever i'm not just going to assume that every single thing that my brain has been filled with about that particular culture is going to be true but i'm going to recognize that in that given context it's possible we would have vast differences. And and so just recognizing those various contexts across a lot of different aspects of one's learning and as you said it starts with a question it doesn't start with you know me, me you know deciding to place those labels i think also for me maybe recognizing that you know that the differences are there and being able to name them when they happen you know that that, that and that doesn't mean that it's okay but you can continually be working to get better so i really like that you hit on the idea of context the next place that I know you want to take us, is <laughs> a, a, sh- a sheer focus on destination as we're thinking about storytelling in our classes, whether we're making videos, giving lectures, whatever, talk a little bit about what you think about for this destination.
1: So in many respects, I guess for me, destination in the classroom, it's how students are thinking about the material or any sort of engagement with whatever discourse it may be. That's At the highest level, I guess, is sort of my destination, is um, your ability to think analytically, think deeply, sort of have a certain discipline to your thinking, willingness to be challenged, but also challenge others in a constructive way. That's the sort of highest level of what's my destination in my classroom. And then from there, it sort of trickles down to how it manifests in, let's say, why I emphasize writing in my class uh, or analytic writing, right? Um, It's not because I want you to be the best writer in the world. No, it's because that's a medium through which you get to hone expressing your ideas in a very sort of structured way. It's also a medium where you get to then get feedback on what your thinking is. So that's why I value that medium it trickles down to the way we engage in class where it's primarily small group discussions that we're doing but also structured where i ask students to have the materials in front of them expect that they have you know highlighted the material have read the material and when they engage in the questions that i pose them to with with the with the text that they do so by referencing where they are in the text so it would be you know whatever page so-and-so author says this this and that why am i doing this again it's about the ability to Um, be disciplined in your thinking, express your ideas, but but be disciplined in a way that you're able to say, here's where it's coming from, here are the assumptions that I'm making, here's my idea, so that people can more effectively engage with you. So in that respect, that's the sort of the, the big level, what's my destination when I teach? And then, of course, when it comes to the actual substance that I teach, then that, again, I have to sort of ask myself, okay, what is it that I want to accomplish? By the time we're done with this section of my class, what is it that, that, you know, where I want you, to, where, where is it that I want you to be? And oftentimes I don't, it's not like I have like a set of bullet points that, you know, should be able to practice so and so and so should be able to articulate, you know, it might just be like, almost like a, a feeling, right? It's almost like, um, like for instance, I teach a, it's a very broad class introduction to Africa. And the first third of the class, it's all about pre-colonial Africa. And so we're exploring from the earliest sort of human evolution, to just overall the dynamism of the continent the trade that emerged and so forth now you ask me at the end of that first third of the class what is it what's the destination at its most simplest what i want my students to come out of saying is oh wow you know, the continent of africa is an incredibly dynamic continent and has always been that way since human inception that's it like if i can have you come out with that sense then we have done a great job so I can keep the destination very simple at times.
0: What I appreciate about what you just shared is that the tendency for so many of us would be to think that we had to cover every country within the continent and a date ranges and that kind of thing. And then the destination really gets lost because you're really trying to take me to so many different places. You've never hooked me as your audience. I... I in. <laughs> Truth be told, if I were to take your class on Africa, I would walk in feeling like, oh, I really missed a lot of this in education. So I would walk in feeling like I didn't belong there, that I wasn't smart enough or I didn't have enough coming in. So I might have feelings of insecurity. And then if you try to take me to all those different destinations, at some point I'm going to go, okay, i um, <laughs> Yeah. I can't do this anymore. It's it's this thing from a long time ago Harvard research about challenging people. It has to do with motivation and it's more in the leadership realm, but it the same thing applies to learning as far as I'm concerned. But yes, challenge me. But if you are challenging me to such a great degree that I never think I can join you at your destination, at some point my motivation just goes all the way down to the bottom and I might fall in two things. I might just fail your class or I may just try to get by the absolute bare minimum that I could. And then I can't really join you in this wonderful aim that you've described here of recognizing that, you know, then I don't have to feel left behind. What you just said about this class, I go, wow, I kind of already knew that but it makes me feel better that you just said that because it's like it is really dynamic we can't treat it in a a universal way but we we do so much in the news and discourse etc so then i'm like wow i really would like to learn more about that you've given me that sense of feeling i could join you in that feeling and then i'm ready for this path which i know is the next thing you're going to kind of share so once once we've got our destination locked in then the path would you talk about the path that you try to help us take to get to that destination and if you want to use the same class example that would be great.
1: Yeah I mean so for instance so given that sort of that destination like one thing I do for instance in class is there's this, this beautiful map of sort of linguistic breakdown across the continent and just you see the map and it's incredible you it sort of really get to see in a bird's eye view the, the sheer diversity on that continent. And so one of the things that we for instance do in class like one of the activities is where I would ask them, you know, what is sort of an average, like, let's say a day, not just commute, but let's say you're trying to go somewhere, um, whatever it may be, an event of some kind, right? You, how many miles would you travel? It would be whatever it may be, let's say 30 or 60 miles at most. Okay. So we, we take the, um, you know, Google map and then stretch it 60 miles. So we get a sense of how much that, you know, how long that is. So I ask, okay, now go in, into the, this map of the linguistic breakdowns you have, pick whatever place, like three, you no know, three countries, place that, you know, what essentially is like a ruler, anywhere you want. And then what I want you to do is I want you to count the number of languages that you would encounter on your journey. Hmm. And immediately students, it's amazing because now they get to see, it's like this thing that I would do on a just a regular day, it's like, I'll try, you know, 60 miles, is nothing. Right? Uh, or, or even like, you know, 100 miles. But then really getting to appreciate, it's like, oh, wait a minute, if I was to be in, you know, place X, I would have encountered four or five different languages on my two to three hour drive. And that's sort of many ways like mind blowing. Um, and that's just on that little stretch that you chose. You could have taken that ruler and placed it anywhere else on the continent and similarly encountered, you know, many different languages. So that just goes to show like just a, the basic point of for you to to come to that discovery yourself of, wow, there are tons of languages there, tons of difference, tons of diversity. And I can see it with a, a measure that makes sense to me, uh, you know, two, three hour drive. So that's one little bit to get you to the destination of, wow, uh, this place is dynamic, it's diverse, it's rich.
0: You have just shared something that is a struggle for so many who teach. Most people would have maybe gotten to your destination in terms of thinking through the learning outcomes, as an example. Yep, I know where we want to go. I kind of know my audience, but this weighing more heavily of where I want to go and where literally I want to go (laughs) is going to make me be more, have more of a tendency to tell them how many languages they would encounter. So you, you brought me as your student into your journey with you by asking me where I live, what's the average commute? I happen to know the average commute in the United States of America because I have a podcast and they tell us, which this is completely not the case for pandemic times, but in non-pandemic times, if you keep your podcast, it's a general rule. If you keep it within the average commute time, you'll be more likely to keep listeners. Now there are lots of podcasts today that break that rule that still have a lot of listeners, but that's just one thing that I'm thinking about. So if you asked, you know, what's your commute? Do you do you, are you a commuter even for the school? We have, you know, lots of people that teach in very urban areas and some of them take public transportation some of my students take oh gosh some of the long commutes like two hours to get to school you know so that that would be something that you if you brought that up in a class you're going to have a lot of different answers a lot of different like now i can take it from my perspective presumably in most parts of the United States, you wouldn't cross too many languages as the primary language. Uh, it would be more of a, perhaps a small subset of, of a of a place, but not like large stretches. And then, then to put ourselves in that place of what that would be like. And then is this an, a literal map that's hanging on a wall or is this something digital? It's something digital. Okay, okay. Yeah. So even nice as you think about your own journey to teaching more online, (laughs) you'll be able to take this one with you for sure.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I mean, in class so far, what I've done is I, well, yeah, they would just on their laptop, would go online and then sort of, you know, get on the map and uh, play around with it. And one thing that I was going to add is, right, like the choice between, like I could have just told you there are many languages. Yes. Right. I could have just said that to you. Yep. And, And for all intents and purposes, in terms of the the sort of the quantity of the information is the same, but there's a profound difference between me telling you and you coming to that discovery, so to speak, yourself. Because when you're doing this exercise, and I say to you, think about your commute, you're not just thinking about your commute. You also are thinking about the, the presumptions, right? As you were saying in your context, it's like, oh, when I think of the U.S., I encounter mostly one language, maybe some other, but like for the most part, it's just one. That's your starting point. Yeah. And so, if suddenly you're doing this exercise, you come across four or five, maybe even six languages. That is profoundly different. That right? is a great di- difference sort of a, a distance between your experience and what that w- experience would have been in, in this different context. So there's there's this learning happening here that is profoundly different from me telling you that same information that you would eventually get, but in a very different way.
0: The thing that I know you already know, but I want want to emphasize this to people listening. Not only do I have the information, so we're kind of in the same place in the sense of if you would have just told me, by the way, if you would have just told me, I probably wouldn't remember, as well as because you asked me to recall information about my own life that's relevant to me, and then you've applied this. So we're still either destination path. We're still at the same place as far as the information that we currently have. However, you've got me hooked. And I'm not even just saying this hypothetically, Joseph. I actually feel really hooked. I want to ask all these questions now. I want to go, well, logistically, how does that work? Do they learn enough of that language to be able to correspond? Or is it signage? Is it, you know, currency that, you know, easier transactions that,
1: I mean, you have me now. (laughs) but like This is exactly what I'm saying. What you're beginning to point to me without me having said anything about this, right? You know, actually, you're, so I'm a political scientist, right? But you already are moving very deep into the question of statecraft. Okay? Mm. How do you construct a state, a bureaucracy, and a bureaucratic infrastructure where you have such diverse languages? In fact, if you look historically, for instance, France was much more diverse in its linguistic with language diversity. And it was because of the, 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 sort of, the state-making agenda that French was standardized in the way that it is. Um, So what you're already touching on are very profound issues about human development in general. And that's all without me having said anything about that. So, yeah.
0: It's also without you having assumed anything about my culture, other than that there's a context here that you know will be likely different for people. Mm -hmm. You'll have a lot of different commute times in that class, a lot of different methods of transportation, but without assuming, oh, Bonnie, I bet you drive here in a car you know i mean guess what make and model that car etc etc cetera, et cetera. so you've really done that let's let's do one more of these just to give another example so i if you could take the, the same class but a different topic or wh- whatever comes to your mind talk a bit about that destination and how you think about it for a given learning outcome topic idea feeling and then that path
1: so there is for instance um so I, I teach a class in authoritarian politics. And one thing that I do, for instance, is like in the, in the literature, one of the things that you'll see emphasized is the, the context in which authoritarian politics occurs. So this is within the regime, not the interaction between the regime and the population, but within the regime. And they really stress is that it's a context of instability in a, in a sense that you don't know whether whoever it is that you're interacting with that whether their preferences are actually being revealed or if they have a different agenda, whether they're, you know, there to sort of stab you in the back, think Machiavelli, but within the regime itself. And that's sort of fundamental to the literature in the way you sort of were to approach the internal politics of authoritarian regimes. And so the question now being, well, how do I get my students to get that sense of what it would be like to be in that kind of context? Because that establish sort of the premise for much of the, the literature and assumptions from which you're working on. Um, so I have a, a, a game that I play uh, where I sort of I simulate this treachery, so to speak, right? where you have the ruler side and you have the conspirator's side. And in each round, students, you don't know who's on what side. Mm. But the, the point of the game at the end is I'm going to tally up the numbers that I end up on, on each of the two sides, and whichever has more wins. And then there's like you can win like $20 or something, so there's this incentive for you to win. But the, the process of the game itself is that in each round, everyone in classroom gets to go around, and you get to recruit each other. And you do that, however, by sh- you know tap, just tapping on your shoulder. You can talk about whatever, and then you tap on your shoulder. And if I say yes, I'm agreeing, without even knowing what side you're on, I'm agreeing to be on your side. And if I, if, if I agree, you show me a flashcard. So I you know, hand out these flashcards, ruler on one side, conspirators on the other. And so you flash a card, and then I get to see if I'm on the ruler's side and you are the conspirators, now I go over to the conspirators side. Right? So there's this recruiting happening in each round, but no one besides you two get to observe who's on what side. Right? And by the way, if I say, no, I don't want to join you, then I never get to see what side you're on. Hmm. And so there's this great sense of uncertainty. And on top of that, you have the designated ruler and a set of ministers. Ministers, in this case, they count more than your regular person in the classroom. And the ruler, their place is, uh, well, it's twofold. Number one, while this recruiting happens, the ruler has their back to the classroom. So in effect, they don't see what's going on. And that sort of mimics what actually happens in real life. Rulers don't really go on what's going on in the organization. What they can do is, that right, they can promote and demote these ministers. So after each round, the ministers are part of that fray of, of recruiting. So after each round, the ministers you know, line up and the ruler gets to decide who to demote and then who among the crowd to promote. So one of the things they'll be able to do is to ask the crowd, do you think this minister is on my side or not? Then of course you're gonna have some people gonna raise hands like, oh, this person with the conspiracy is with the conspiracy and so on and so forth. Now the problem is this, if you're on the conspiracy and you want to win, and you know that one of the ministers is on the, on the ruler's side. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to denounce that minister as being part of the conspiracy. Precisely in order to get rid of that minister. Right? So now you have ministers who, in the beginning of the game, said, oh, I'm going to be this loyal subject, and I'm not even going to participate in the recruiting process. I'm just going to stay out. I'm going to show with the ruler I'm loyal. But now, all of a sudden, someone is pointing their finger at you and saying that you're on the other side as you're part of the conspiracy? Now the ruler is like, well, are you? And you're like, no, I'm not. And right? I'm, I'm part of, I'm a loyal subject. And ruler is like, well, how do I know that? How do I, can, how can I trust you? And before you know it, without you even, you know, wanting to participate, you now are in the midst of this, you know, blame game and, and conspiracies that are going on. And so at the end of the game, students really get a feel for this sense of uncertainty, decision making under uncertainty, and the the potential for it to really shape the actions within the regime, why uh, subordinates do what they do. So that's crucial. So again, I have a certain destination and this game serves me in that, in that, uh, in
0: that purpose. Your game is reminding me, well, your game is a role immersion game, and it's reminding me a little bit of way back on episode 21, so people listening would have had to be listening back in 2014, or, or you already know of this on your own, but there is a role immersion game that is called Reacting to the Past. I don't know if you've heard of it, Joseph, but I was able to talk with Mark Carnes from Bernard College, and I'd encourage people to go back and check out that episode if you're interested, because Reacting to the Past started out as one game similar to what you're describing here, but actually then expanded to where authors and, and scholars can now write their own games in given contexts and throughout history and throughout the world, and it really is a, a nice way to enter in. You're also reminding me a little bit, I used to play a leadership game called the power game. And it was similar in the sense of that there was actually money involved, actual real money that somebody could earn. And it, it had to do with you'd give out slips of paper of you're either top, middle, or bottom. And then you'd set up a few frameworks like, okay, top, you're going to make the decision of what to do with the money and then separate people a little bit. You, mm-hmm. you go down there and you can only talk to them if you know, they get their permission or whatever. I don't remember all of it because it was such a long time ago. But what I do vividly remember is it's a game <laughs> very small stakes but yet the degree to which people would buy into these yes. labels that they were assigned yeah. and lit- I mean get so incredibly angry you. and I, I never did it like a game to try to mess with people's minds yeah. but the hope is of course that you would learn some valuable lessons around leadership and to question systems and structures that are set up to quiet people's voices like what who said that they had to be separate. I didn't, you know, we never said that, but unfortunately some people would miss the lessons because they did, you know, become so defensive. And so, you know, and and of course I didn't ever get to talk to them years later and see if they rethought that, but most people really did enjoy the experience and get a lot out of it. These are the kinds of games, and you mentioned this, where if I do this simulation with you, then every piece of literature that comes in front of me, I can use this as a lens because not only do I kind of know vocabulary but i have experience to use as a lens as i read and engage
1: precisely in fact that's exactly that's exactly it and i actually do that explicitly like remember when we played the game when this this has happened and the one thing i was going to add with the game is that actually there is a debriefing session so Mm -hmm. after the game you know you go into small groups there's a set of questions in fact there's a there's a quote that i use says something to the effect of you know the ones you need to worry about are not the ones that oppose you. The ones you need to be worried about are those who oppose you, but don't state it publicly. Mm -hmm. So that's that's all about that uncertainty. Who is and is not with you? And so, you know, I I, I showed them that quote and then asked them, okay, you know, think about what you just went through in this game. And so they get get a chance to, you know, essentially debrief, think about, be reflective about the game, and and really draw and tease out these these underlying processes that we are essentially simulating in this game.
0: And people who want to learn more about the practice of debriefing, episode 139, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, is Effective Debriefing Approaches with Stephanie Lancaster. She speaks about it in the context of nursing simulations that they do, but it definitely would apply to what Joseph just shared and to what I shared about the power game as well. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I just wanted to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. Text Expander has been the longest running sponsor of Teaching in Higher Ed, yet every single time I get excited to share about them with you. I know many of you have started using Text Expander because of the show and I want to thank you, but I know you're also already thanking yourself because it does save you so much time, and that's what you're sharing with me. So, Text Expander allows you to create or establish what are called snippets a few letters, a few characters, whatever you want to do. And when you press your space bar, it automatically expands into something that's either hard for you to remember or lengthy text, etc. Right now, we're doing a bunch of training for our faculty, workshops, and professional development. And one of the ways that Text Expander helps me is to have all of the links for the various registrations for the programs automatically easy for me to access. I don't have to remember them. I don't have to copy and paste. Instead, I just go to my browser and type in link DT201, for example, and all of a sudden I've got the registration link for anyone who asks. There are literally limitless ways that you can use text expander to boost your productivity to help even teams communicate smarter because you can get a team package where you're sharing some of those text expansion snippets together and it's got collaboration capabilities or you can use it on your own. And it works really anywhere you type things in. So it works on a Mac, it works on Windows, it works on Chrome and on the iPhone and iPad. So head on over to textexpander.com podcast and you can get 20% off your first year. That's an offer for teaching and higher ed listeners. And again, I'd like to thank Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. Again, that's textexpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations and I wanted to share mine and that is I am making a series of videos for my classes so that I can have more of a high flex and, and flexible and general approach and I am a big fan of not Thinking we have to use super fancy equipment. You know, we don't need fancy video cameras. I do think sound is a nice thing to you know think about and not be you know recording with lots of wind or you know. But but you can really get by with a smartphone. And I like a new Gorilla Pod thing that I purchased and it's it's like a tripod, but the legs of it are completely flexible. So you could actually attach it to a tree or a pole or, or something like that. And I heard about this from Mike Wesh. Mike Wesh really developed some amazing videos for his Anthropology 101 class. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too, in case you haven't seen his videos, but I'm having so much fun with it. So I had to actually buy two things. One would be the little mount for the cell phone itself so that it can can hook onto my iPhone. It's got a little stretchy thing. It'll grab onto the iPhone and then also the part that attaches to the legs. So it could attach to a camera or other kinds of devices, but I have it attached to my smartphone. So that's my recommendation is to not think your videos have to be perfect. In fact, quite the opposite, the authenticity that comes through if we're just literally talking to think about yourself just talking to Instead of all of your students, I recommend thinking of yourself talking to a student and really looking in that camera and being able to even picture that student who is representative in your mind of someone just like the audience that Joseph spoke about earlier who is, you know, maybe not quite curious, so you're almost trying to persuade them to become more curious and thinking about I'm talking to one person, I'm looking at that camera, I'm simulating eye contact as best I can, and trying to develop that kind of curiosity. So that's my recommendation for today, and I'm going to pass it over to you, Joseph, for yours.
1: So mine is in line with, I guess, in some ways, what inspired the video series that I, that I developed on the analytic paper, and it's, uh, if you haven't got a chance, his name is Grant Sanderson. And he has this YouTube channel called Three Blue, One Brown. Two series in particular, the essence of linear algebra and the essence of calculus. Highly recommend his videos, even if you have no interest in mathematics. It is so beautifully done. Um, really has a unique grasp of, of getting to the intuition and really tease out the beauty of the ideas involved in in these mathematical disciplines uh, that he covers. Uh, and then recently, I had a chance to watch his talk that he gave. He did a TED talk in Berkeley. Highly recommend that as well. You should be able to find it on his channel. Really interesting take on why mathematics and his videos are as popular as they are.
0: Well, and people should go look at your YouTube channel as well to get inspiration on our storytelling. I found them riveting and I candidly wouldn't normally watch mathematics videos and, um, on the topics that you shared. I'm ready to take your class on Africa. I'm ready to take the other class that you mentioned. And I, uh, you know, subscribe to your YouTube and got, you know, really get a lot out of it. I, I found, I find them to be very interesting, even as someone who doesn't normally watch that kind of topic, but they're really, really, really interesting. And they also help me be a better teacher because at the same time as I'm learning about the topics that you're presenting, I'm also learning how to hook people better. And I'm sort of deconstructing what you're doing and thinking about your destination and the path that you're taking us on. And you really are just so incredible at being able to do that. And I'm so inspired by you and grateful for this opportunity to talk to you today.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: What a pleasure it was today to have this conversation with Joseph Waldense. I am so inspired by him, as I said, as we concluded the episode, and I'm just thankful that you can head on over to the show notes, and so can I, at teachinginhighered.com slash 321-321, and then get the links to his video series, which you'll see what I'm talking about when you get there, as to how inspiring they can be, not just for the content that they convey, but also for the -the behind-the-scenes look at how he hooks us and and persuades us to keep on watching and get curious about that part of the research process. So thanks to all of you for listening and to being a part of the teaching and higher ed community. I've had so much fun lately, people on Twitter posting pictures of them reading my book, and it brings me so much joy. And I'm just thrilled to be able to continue to have these conversations with and uh, with you listening. Thanks so much.
1: I'll see you next time.